Kepasa Mufasa. Nihao. Salam Aleikum. Buongiorno Principesha. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Micopreneur Podcast. This is a podcast dedicated to the movers and the shakers in the world of mushrooms and beyond. And today we've got quite the mover and the shaker joining us on the podcast. He is a serial entrepreneur, investor, psychonaut, and philanthropist, best known for his wildly successful early investments in crypto, which netted him a fortune in excess of $300 million before his 30th birthday, and more recently as the founder and CEO of Made Man Skincare and managing partner of the multi-million dollar Mystic Ventures Fund. Everybody, please welcome Jeremy Gardner. It is almost systemic what's happened. There's just been a radical flip in the understanding of what these substances do. It's no longer like young people tripping, getting high, protesting the war. It's now about just like feeling more empathetic, more connected to your family or to your children, just being happier, not drinking alcohol. I mean, the number of friends that I've had quit alcohol in the past two years because they were introduced to mushrooms, I mean, it's a dozen plus. I mean, it's just such a unique point in time right now. I love this guy. What a fascinating individual. It's an honor to host this podcast for you. Please consider rating and reviewing this episode wherever you're listening and send it to a friend if it strikes your fancy. Friends don't let friends sleep on the Mycopreneur podcast. Without further ado, let's get this show on the road. Hey, Pasa Mufasa, what's up? Jeremy Gardner, serial entrepreneur, crypto rock star, and psychedelic medicine investor. Welcome to the Micopreneur Podcast. How are things today in your world, Jeremy? Things are fabulous. Sunny and warm in uh, Puerto Rico, so I cannot complain. I gotcha. So I had a chance to catch a few of your panels at Wonderland in Miami a couple months ago. And the first thing that stood out to me immediately is how similar our fashion aesthetics are. You had a really rocking cowboy hat. You were dripped out in some crazy colors. And I'm curious, do you have a stylist or do you wake up in the morning and decide to dress like an eccentric millionaire? <laughs> um, I, I really... Uh just have a very eclectic uh wardrobe i i i it's probably worth like probably in total two thousand dollars it's a lot of stuff but i don't spend money on clothing no i don't have a stylist i tried that once didn't work out like i don't like designer stuff i just like if something catches my eyes i'll get it but i hate uh clothing shopping so it's very like arbitrary what i have it's just like when i need clothes i'll go buy them and then they kind of just compile into this smorgasbord of things I sometimes wear. Yeah, I myself acquire a lot of garments on my travels. I'm particularly moved when I'm, yeah. you know, somewhere far afield and I see the locals wearing something. I got, I got to get one of those myself. So, you know, crypto was all anybody was talking about for the longest time. And now general society and the population at large is conspicuously silent about it from my perception. So it, it seems like the fattiness or the trendiness around crypto has died down and been replaced by maybe, you know, something more sobering and, and more realistic. And, you know, some of that early unabashed enthusiasm has tapered off a little bit. Do you think we're going to go back to seeing crypto being huge again? Or, you know, was that a bubble that burst and it's burst now? It's bubbles that have burst and then, you know, uh, bull markets that have gotten bigger each time. Uh, if I had to guess, I think there's probably one major crypto bull market left before 
crypto really starts to normalize, at least as an asset class. Uh, you know, we've had four major bull markets, uh, all, all of which I've been around for, and or I guess three or four. Um, and, and I have no reason to believe that we're not going to experience another one in the next two, three years, maybe sooner, depending more on the macro economy than anything. I mean, this is the first recession uh, or soon-to-be recession and an inflationary environment that crypto's ever experienced. So it's hard to say when it will happen. But, yeah, no, there will be mania again. Uh, people will be getting rich quick, losing all their money quick. Uh, it's hard to imagine that not happening at least one more time uh, before things flatten out. But fundamentally, like blockchain technology, the underlying in innovation in crypto, it, it, it is not sexy. It's a distributed database. And blockchain technology is being adopted in the world and in enterprises and in, in governments and in organizations, but it's not interesting. It's like telling someone you're building your company on AWS. Nobody cares. It's just, a, it's, just it, it's the best technological solution. Um, but crypto assets as this wildly speculative asset will come to resemble, you know, at least the big one, something like gold, where it's, you know, you know, it's slightly volatile, more volatile than the dollar, obviously, but still uh, somewhat stable and a good store of value. And another store of value that I've been bullish on for a long time is psychedelics. It's something that played a huge psychedelics played a huge role in shaping my personality and my college years and onward. And it's really interesting for me now to see it as such a mainstream biotechnology, essentially, where people are really interested in it. Right. There's a, kind of a bubble building around it right now. There's conferences. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I had a, I was on the phone doing an interview with a Norwegian journalist yesterday. She's like, so what did people think when you started a psychedelic medicine venture fund? I was like, well, nobody was surprised. It's me. I just, like, I previously told her I started taking mushrooms when I was 14 years old. So, like, there was nothing there. Like, it wasn't shocking to anyone. I've been, I've been an advocate for psychedelics long before this current renaissance. But what I said, you know, was surprising to me in the past one to two years since I started the fund how mainstream psychedelics have gone. I mean, it's literally in the time since I started my fund, like a year and a half. It's gone from something that was getting accepted by academia and, and the field of medicine, and, you know, all, all these new studies were coming out. But, but societally, you know, there was still some stigma and taboo from, you know, the 60s and 70s and Nixon's war on drugs. And it's like that's all evaporated. I mean, it's just like... You know, I, I, I'm in this, staying at, in this very ritzy neighborhood in Dorado, Puerto Rico, and we hosted a dinner for my venture fund. This guy comes with actually uh, I, the Mind Bars. They're chocolate bars spelled with a Y. And he comes, and he's like, all the housewives in Dorado are eating these. Like, can you imagine a world, just like two, three years ago, where, like, ritzy neighborhoods uh like housewives are all like eating mushrooms on the daily instead of hitting a glass of wine or drinking Z or popping xanax like it, it it's literally just it, it is almost systemic what's happened where there 
there's just been a radical flip in the understanding of what these substances do. It's no longer like young people tripping, getting high, protesting the war. Like uh, it's now about just like feeling more empathetic, more connected to your family or to your children, just being happier, not drinking alcohol. I mean, the number of friends that I've had quit alcohol in the past two years because they were introduced to mushrooms. I mean, it's a dozen plus. I mean. It's just such a unique point in time right now. Yeah, I've been very interested in speculating about where this is all headed. Because if you asked either one of us or many people three years ago where we'd be in 2023, I don't know how many people would have told you that we're going to be having major mainstream conferences in almost every major city, it seems like, right? We've got psychedelic conferences popping off in Tel Aviv this year, and of course, Miami, New York City, Amsterdam, all over the place. Well, well, that I'll say that doesn't surprise me as much just because I lived through crypto, and I saw how quickly that happened there. I mean, when I, got, when I decided to buy out all the investors in my last venture fund so I could launch this one, part of the reason was, uh, you know, what I told people was like, this reminds me of crypto in 2015. Like, this is the time now. And, and, and there was already money being made. And the second money is being made in a new business, the conferences pop up. But, but the difference between this and crypto is that people were talking about Bitcoin. People were trying to invest in Bitcoin. They weren't using Bitcoin. Uh, in this case, people are actually using the mushrooms, even though they're still illegal. I mean, it, it, it's kind of crazy to me. I mean, the, the adoption of psychedelics in the past two years, I'd say almost is outpacing Bitcoin as like a functional currency in its early days of adoption. And obviously, mushrooms have always been around, but the rate of adoption right now is it's just skyrocketing. I feel like everywhere I go now, I'm probably not interacting with your average Joe as much as most people. But everywhere I go, I'm meeting people and that they're microdosing mushrooms and using them or going doing plant medicine ceremonies. And, and it, that just was not the case a few years ago outside of like, you know, enclaves in San Francisco and New York and L.A. But it's much more widespread. Now. Yeah, it's fascinating. And I grew up in Southern California and went to school in San Francisco. So I was very adjacent, directly right. involved with a lot of these circles and Silicon Valley and et cetera. So it, it's just as come as a surprise to me when I have someone from Riyadh, Saudi Arabia on the podcast who's a feminist talking about the psychedelic revolution that's taking shape in the Middle East and then the Swana region. So fascinating. So you're investing in a lot of psychedelic companies and I've recently launched a app called Psychonauti, which is Tinder for trippers. Is that something that you can see being adopted into the general population? Uh, that's too funny. So I, I actually just re-downloaded a dating app and it has these prompts and there's like, like, forget like the dinner and movies. Like, what's your new dating routine? I'm like eating mushrooms together on the second date. Uh, so I, I think it, 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 it could be a good idea. It could be a really combustive idea. I like the idea of marketing it as a harm reduction app because the stigma around sex and psychedelics has just been so omnipresent for so long. But, you know, the more I learn about this intersection, the more I realize it's actually a reclamation of a lot of ancestral practices and a lot of these 
kind of practices that were stewarded over before colonization. So it's something I'm learning about, but I think psychonauty, Tinder for trippers. That's my plug for that in there. Well, you, what, I, what I would just tell you is just learn how the BDSM community operates because they've got it down, how you do all the consent and how you create a real community around kind of a niche sexual interest. Yep, I'm studying them. There is, uh, it's what I'm willing to do, what's negotiable, and what I absolutely won't do. And I believe that's the baseline for a lot of engagement in the BDSM community, which I actually learned via moderating a panel at one of the psychedelic conferences. So let's pivot from these kind of macro narratives and talking about broader societal shifts into something more targeted towards what you're doing right now. And one of those things is that you are seeking to evolve our conception of masculinity by skincare products and psilocybin is my understanding, at least partially of what you're doing. And I'm curious about where do you see masculinity headed in the next generation? Because I see this sort of division going on right now where you have the Andrew Tates of the world and you have his adherents and disciples who are saying we need to reclaim some romanticized lost notion of dominant masculinity. And then you have the other side, you know, which is much more fluid. And where do you see masculinity headed over the next generation? And how do, how do psychedelics fit into that transformation? Well, you know, I would argue that everyone has skin. And therefore, you know, whether you're Andrew Tate or or Donald Trump, it doesn't matter, you still have skin, you should probably take care of it. Nobody likes looking like shit, nobody likes looking old. Uh, you know, self-care should not be stigmatized. I don't think it will be. If it's not my company, Made Man, or another, it will be another company in the next decade that figures out how to kind of shift the narrative around men's skincare. It's just, it's a silly thing that we don't do in the West, about 80 per, I mean, in East Asia, like China, South Korea, Japan, like 80% of men take care of their skin. We're just behind them. Like, uh, it will happen. But I think you alluded to an interesting dichotomy, nonetheless, is that, you know, masculinity in the West is fucked. You've got the Andrew Tates of the world, Donald Trumps, Dan Bilzerian types. And then on the right, on the, or on the left, uh, who do you have? Uh, you know, you, ha you, you have... A society that uh, that has put the fear of God or whatever into men, where they won't even identify as masculine, where they have to state their pronouns because they're so terrified of you know not not doing enough, like you know being politically incorrect. That that there, it's no wonder that you have these hard right kind of neoclassical masculinity guys emerging because there are no strong embodiments of what I like to call positive masculinity. There are all these discussions of toxic masculinity, but nobody's trying to go out and create these frameworks for what positive masculinity is. Obviously, Andrew Tate is not it. And so that, that was the goal, that was inspiration for starting Made Man years ago. It, it's not something that's solved overnight, but I do think psychedelics obviously can play a large role the same way that if you gave everyone in the world ayahuasca or mushrooms we'd probably live in a much better place like it, it, you know you know once you can like shatter like false notions that society imparts upon you which is where much of that toxic masculinity comes from whether it's from entertainment or television or music or just you know you know 
mainstream figures in our society, you know, once, you know, a tab of acid or a few grams of mushrooms will knock that right out of you. You'll realize how ridiculous that is as, as long as you, you know, set yourself up for a proper experience. You know, I think it can also, you know, psychedelics can also push people in the wrong direction. But I, I but, but generally speaking, this, you know, most people come out of profound or mystical experiences with this notion that we're all one, we're all connected. And when you feel that way, things like patriarchy or, you know, misogyny, you know, they, they tend not to make as much sense. And so, you know, when, I, when I'm advocating for the adoption of psychedelics, both medicinally, but also just for the elevation of consciousness, I'm not saying we need to go tear down the patriarchy, but I think it will slowly soften you know, the legacy of patriarchy in our society. And I think that's a good thing. Sure. And you just mentioned this idea that is pretty universal and a lot of psychedelic experience about we're all one, the Dr. Bronner slogan, right? And being connected. So I'm curious to hear about your recipe for affecting meaningful social change while generating personal profits. Because this conversation around capitalism or generating personal wealth via psychedelics or vehicles related to psychedelics, many people in the space would, would argue that building personal wealth is antithetical to the arc of positive social change. And I'm not going to take a side here, but I'm just curious how you're going to frame this. Oh, I will. I think that's total so, horseshit. Well, yeah. So <laughs> let, let me just put it. Yeah. So the last, what are, what are these critics overlooking and you know, that leads you to believe. Well, yeah. let's I, look, Marx is my favorite economic Thinker. In fact, I call myself the most Marxist venture capitalist you'll ever meet. But look at every implementation of communism or socialism in history. Like, full blown. Doesn't work. Democratic socialism works, but it's capitalistic. Um, to believe that the pursuit of wealth is somehow inherently immoral in a society that's precipitated off of the pursuit of wealth, has, you have to be taking issue with the system, not the people participating, because how else am I supposed to affect change? Like hand out pamphlets on the street, go raise money for half-hearted politicians? I've done that. I, I was at Occupy Wall Street. I worked for the governor of Massachusetts. And know what I realized? I wasn't gonna achieve shit in my 20s, you know, taking those conventional approaches to change. Uh, so, you know, when I saw Bitcoin for the first time, really discovered it, you know, I realized that people could be their own bank. And I, I was a tireless evangelist. The first thing I ever started was an educational nonprofit, now the largest and oldest nonprofit in crypto. And that was the first thing I ever did in this space, the blockchain education network. And, and it's been hugely successful. And through that, I got more and more opportunities. I made more and more money. I never once did anything for money. It was always because I loved doing it. And I thought it was impactful. And so the notion that I can't pursue impactful paths in life, whether it's investing in world-changing startups or, you know, um, well, that's really what I do, or building them myself, um, the fact that, you know, the notion that it's somehow immoral that I, I make money doing those things, positively affecting people's lives at scale, um, you know, doing massive amounts of philanthropy. I think like, I, I mean, last year I 
donated like close to a million dollars. I mean, like, like far outside what was tax beneficial for me. Like, that's real change going to highly directed philanthropic projects. Like, you know, when the government takes your money, it just like it gets all wasted in the bureaucracy. Like, your tax dollars, for the most part, aren't doing good. I actually have the capacity to direct my money in ways that, that meaningfully changes to the world. Like, I was able to get, uh, feed 10,000 families in Afghanistan for two months while, while they were having, um, while they were uh, dealing with a famine. I mean, that, to say my work is somehow immoral when it allows me to do that, and when all the work that's made my money benefits the world uh, in one way or another, it's just profoundly ridiculous to me. I don't think capitalism's a great system, but I don't know a better one. Yeah, you know, I've taken some heat for essentially taking a very similar position on it, and it's something that I realize is pretty focal point right now because so many collisions of values are happening. You know, psychedelics are bringing up to the surface all of these historical narratives and arcs that are kind of all butting heads against each other right now. And I think that's some of what we see, you know, the fallout on the political spectrum and on the, the social spectrum from these days. So I want to pull on that thread. Well, the, the political spectrum is just like the same thing with the masculinity. The left has gone too far and the right has gone too far. Uh, you know, we just need more nuance in our society. I'm here for the nuance. Let's pull on this thread a little bit. And I'm, I like to identify these hot takes or conversations that I'm hearing often off camera, you know, just floated around out there. And one of them that I've become aware of is this conversation around crypto millionaires and their presence in Puerto Rico and the ultra wealthy. Of course, it's a favorable tax base. I know people who live there. And while I myself, I'm very interested in offshore banking. I'm following the citizenship by investment industry. And of course, El Salvador adopted Bitcoin as an official currency. And there were people moving to Billionaire Beach there, right? But I've also heard the perspective from Puerto Rican locals and from people on their side saying that it's a form of neo-colonialism. That's a word that gets thrown around a lot in the space, or at least I seem to get exposed to it a lot. So I'm curious about, again, in the same context as the last, as the last question, what are some positives and mutual benefits to the presence of ultra-wealthy individuals in Puerto Rico who are moving there essentially and snapping up real estate and, and building in Puerto Rico? So I think it is a form of neocolonialism. Uh, when my friends started moving here, I called them tax-evading colonists, uh, colonizers. But what they've created is an incredible community, one that's invested in new restaurants, new housing developments, some of, many of which are low-income. You don't read about that in the news. You know, your Puerto Rican friends may not know about that. Investing in the hospitals, uh, investing in infrastructure. But there's always going to be a tinge of colonialism. Puerto Rico in and of itself is the oldest, you know, perhaps we don't call it a colony anymore, but it's, it was the first place to be colonized in the Americas. I mean, and it's still a territory of the United States without statehood. So, so anything involving gringos is in, in inevitably going to evoke colonialism uh, because of the historical connotations. But that being said, uh, Puerto Ricans have the highest quality of life, life of anyone in the Caribbean by an order of magnitude. I mean, uh, the, I, the notion that they'd be better off without the gringos is, is 
not something that is broadly accepted even amongst Puerto Ricans. You know, there, it's an argument between territorial status or statehood. Nobody thinks they're better off without the gringos. And yet, so taking issue with gringos moving here is a bit hypocritical of, because, you know, Floridians get mad about the New Yorkers moving there, but you, it's not a really deep resentment. You know, you have to, if you want to be part of the United States, which about more than half of this island does, you have to be okay with people from the United States coming here. Now, obviously, the tax breaks that the gringos are getting probably won't be tenable long-term if they get statehood. But those are pretty much mutually exclusive ideas. What convinced me to move here was the fact that I saw my friends so engaged in the community here. I mean, they, you know... They, they may not be friends with your local Puerto Rican friends, or I don't even know. Your friends may be part of the diaspora. I, I, I don't know. But I haven't had one negative interaction. And, and, I, and I spoke to my friends from the Puerto Rican diaspora and, and connected with their family or friends that were still on the island before I moved here to get a sense of how they felt. Like, am I welcome here? And I got a very different sense. I, what I have heard... Mostly, is the negative sentiment is coming from the diaspora, the the folks you know in in New York, you know in Massachusetts, you know the folks that see this happening, but they're not being negatively affected. Their family isn't being negatively affected, and this island has so much potential. I mean, in in, in nine, the mid nineteen sixties, the economic development of Puerto Rico was considered the greatest. Economic miracle in the history of capitalism. I mean, that was a widespread notion. The amount of development that was, you know, that that, that the United States invested in to this island to bring it, make it the, by far the most advanced economy in the Caribbean was extraordinary. And you know, back then they actually had the number one water system in the United States. So there have been tremendous benefits, and I think those benefits can, continu- can continue. Um, but it's about rep- uh, reciprocity, something we talk about a lot in psychedelics. I don't think you can come to an island that has a deep history, rich culture, and, and not invest in that you know, culture and invest in the people um, and really you know, uh, let them see the benefits of you moving here. I think the sentiment shifted a lot in five years. I think there, 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 there's a real acknowledgement uh, of the gains that come from now this like gringo diaspora moving here. Word. And you mentioned that you hosted a dinner for your venture fund in Puerto Rico the other day or recently. And I'm curious, what types of companies in the psychedelic space are you primarily interested in supporting or investing in with your venture fund? So my, I'm really fortunate in that I've kind of got like investor market fit, and 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 what I mean by that is that my LPs really let me do whatever I want to, and so our fund's thesis is the elevation of consciousness. So we've invested in breathwork apps, uh, uh, a VR app, you know, a holotropic uh, uh, biometric-based sound therapy application. We've invested in, you know, drug discovery and drug development companies, B2B software service companies. Uh, if it's venture scalable, and I believe it can kind of lead to the elevation of consciousness, 
it's, it's a meeting I'll take. I take a very broad view of this industry and what's needed uh, for humanity to Im improve its condition. And I don't limit myself to strictly psychedelic companies, but that's the majority of our focus. Well, you mentioned a couple of software companies, a couple of apps, right? And I'd be curious to talk about the direction of technology. It's something I've been following for a long time. My degrees in media studies, and I was on the first wave of social media. And I remember following the Jasmine revolution over right in Libya and in North Africa and how people were coordinating revolts and, and protests with Twitter. And then seeing that evolve into the all of the controversy around social media with the Trump administration and with election cycles and so on and so forth. And one of the early thinkers in my life who shaped a lot of how I perceive technology was a very eccentric early VR pioneer in Silicon Valley. And I used to spend time at his houseboat in Sausalito that was the former residence of Alan Watts and it had quite a psychedelic legacy to it. And this was the first person I had ever met or directly talked to who was building a bunker in New Zealand. And he seemed to have this you know, broad view of technology being co-opted by governments in a, a pretty dystopian way. And this was the first time I'd ever heard this perspective, right? I was very honeymoony about, oh, look at social media, look at technology, we can keep in touch with everyone. And I didn't really consider that potentially dark side of you know surveillance state or you know being constantly tracked and monitored and so on and so forth. So I just would love to talk about like kind of your view of where technology is going. Are you at all concerned about the surveillance state and the war against privacy? Or are these, again, things that are kind of blown out of proportion by people who need something to crusade against? No, I mean, I want to be optimistic, but we don't have uh, uh, a greater than 50% chance of living in a dystopia in the future. This is why we need to get every world leader to eat mushrooms as soon as possible. I mean, it, 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 it's, it's not promising. You know, surveillance, capitalism got really out of hand at the end of the last decade, but there's been some pullback uh, with all the tracking and advertising and just like placing limits on companies uh, and apps. Apple's really done a lot of good work on the privacy side of things, especially with the iPhone. But it's bad. I mean, it, it, you know, the internet effectively was Pandora's box. There's no putting it back in the box, and it very well could lead to the demise of our society. I, I you know, like, so, someone like Donald Trump, you know, whether you hate him or love him, never would have been possible to become president without the internet. I mean, it, it, it you know, it, it is, you know, he is a, a unique symptom of the society that we live in, and... I don't, it's hard to see how things get, get too much better unless, and this is my hope, is that we come to see social media or even just phone usage like uh, we look at cigarettes now. It's just bad for you. It's just not good for your health. And if you can reframe this, uh, if you can reframe this technology that way, because I really think social media is a sickness a lot of the time for most people. If we can reframe it that way, we might have some hope. You know, uh, get people outdoors more maybe. 
But no, I mean, look, this is a fundamental flaw of capitalism is that, you know, companies are forever incentivized to seek uh, profits over people. Now, obviously, there's even a shift in that mentality at the corporate level. You know, Delaware has their public benefit corporations, which I've used for my own company. Uh, but, you know, what you have to ask is, is are the positive, positive social developments happening fast enough to keep up with the negative ones? And, and, and it's an existential question. Uh, but I, I, I think, you know, it, it's important to be aware. It's important to be woke, as stigmatized as that term is, but just to be very cognizant of these negative trends. And, and if you have the capacity to make a difference, so, uh, through your actions and change the kind of path that we're on, push it in a more positive direction. I mean, that's what I encourage every young entrepreneur to do. Yeah, you know, another technology that's getting a lot of traction, a lot of public interest right now, and also a lot of ethical debates surrounding it is artificial intelligence, of course, which again, for some people is the boogeyman, for other people it's displacing artists, for other people it's the greatest thing ever and we need to lean into it. So I'd just be curious if this is something you've spent time thinking about and do you have any specific predictions for the way that AI will shape society over the next few generations? Oh, I got a lot of thoughts. That could be a whole podcast. I, uh, I've, I mean, I was in San Francisco from 2014 to 2018. George Hotz, who's considered probably the best hacker on the planet or top five, built a self-driving car in my basement in two months. Uh, you know, uh, at the behest of Elon Musk initially, but then he told Elon to go fuck himself. And, uh, but, but he literally taught a car to drive itself on the highway in two months. Uh, it, the threat of AI is unbelievably real. You know, uh, you know, like I said, internet, Pandora's box, social media, AI, all these are individually unique risks, but combined are incredibly dangerous. Is my life better with all of them? Absolutely. I mean, everything I've done has been on the internet professionally besides the psychedelic stuff. I, well, even my venture fund is hosted on a website and man managed by a website. Uh, but, but, but AI is uniquely dangerous because this idea of a sentient AI um, that develops consciousness. Like someone tweeted the other day, there's one thing you could do to, uh, or, or remove to, to make the world better, the earth better, what, what would it be? The only obvious answer is humans. Like we are <laughs> terrible for this planet. Like we're not, we do not add value. We, or whatever value we add, we do far more damage. Like a sentient AI, is inevitably going to come to that conclusion. Um, and so how powerful we let these AIs get. Like they're already, like, like San Francisco almost introduced uh, like killer robots. I mean, like it's happening now. And this is why um, Elon Musk started Neuralink. He's like, I realize we're not going to create global regulations on, on the development of artificial intelligence. So the only hope is that we can become artificially intelligent to, to counter the development of, you know, uh, general AI. And I, I think that, you know, 
as much as Elon annoys the shit out of me. I, I completely agree with that notion. I mean, you know, um, some people are mortified at, uh, by the thought of uh, uh, brain-computer implants, but I don't know how we keep up otherwise. And so it, it, it's precarious. Something like chat GPT-3, it's a revolution. It's going to make people's lives better in so many different ways. And, and, and AI... Especially in like things like drug discovery, vaccine development, like we will have more cures to diseases in the next ten years or next twenty years than we have in all of human history as a result of artificial intelligence. Uh, the number of new powerful drugs being developed for mental health, for just all sorts of awful illnesses, are going to be developed because of artificial intelligence, and so it. Every, everything requires nuance, you know. There, there, there's no right answer here other than that, you know, it's something to be aware of. Yeah, so let's scale it back from the technology and the AI and talk about what you mentioned is one of the things that you actually do offline, which is psychedelics or mushrooms. And you mentioned that you first encountered mushrooms when you were 14. Obviously, they're still very in vogue or, you know, you're very connected to them in your lifestyle. Do you have a specific process or like a preferred set and setting for how you go about having a mushroom experience? And is that something that's changed over time? You know, different people will argue that it should be done with, you know, a ceremonial container, if you will, for using the language of our time or, right, done. Oh, oh yeah, no. just, done. what's oh, your mushroom, what's your mushroom usage like? <laughs> so, 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 look, if you're doing like mescaline, ayahuasca, combo, like those, those have kind of long, ceremonial lineages mushrooms men have been men and women have been foraging for mushrooms and eating psychedelic mushrooms for thousands of years guess what you eat the mushrooms when you're in nature and you explore around nature and you feel connected with nature it's that simple like just go be in nature somewhere where you feel safe um i've recently taken to the lemon tech approach like I, which is where you just take a bunch of mushrooms, grind them up in a coffee grinder, um, mix them into some lemon juice for about 20 minutes, and then you just shoot it back. Um, it, uh, I love it. it. It shortens the trip a bit, but it makes it a stronger and more consistent throughout. And yeah, I just go into nature. I just It was my 31st birthday on Sunday, and every year I just go out into nature. This year I went and stayed at a farm um, up in the mountains, hung out by a river with my dog and just like went inwards and like that for me is it like I love eating mushrooms with my friends and adventuring as well and and I'll do that um probably at lower doses uh, most people would not be well with the amount of mushrooms I eat uh but for me it's about just like disconnecting from the world you know phone is on airplane mode I brought it on for music but for me nature's huge uh you know I'll sometimes have smaller doses of mushrooms at like a good music festival or concert, but mushrooms are like my nature drug. Yeah, and I share I share that proclivity for mm -hmm. macrodoses with you. That you know, my thinking was shaped heavily by my early macrodose experiences and continues to be. 
And I've always felt very comfortable with large doses, but I've learned the hard way, not everybody does, right? You don't always wanna turn your friend on to 10 grams or whatever of mushrooms. So when you mention like the amount of mushrooms you take, is there a threshold that you're very comfortable with where if you say, I wanna go inward, I wanna, it's my 31st birthday and happy belated birthday, by the way, I wanna do a macro dose. Is there a general dosage that you're looking at or is it more of a spectrum or what does that look like? <laughs> well, this time I was unprepared, but I had like just a massive Ziploc bag of mushrooms and I just, I just like, I didn't have the coffee grinder. So, so, and, and I was like, it was kind of like this bed and breakfast Airbnb. So they made me uh, like pancakes. So I just like plucked out all the mushroom caps and I, I jammed them into my pancake. And then as much as I could kind of grind up, they were still kind of raw. They weren't easy to like grind up by, with my fingers. So as much as I could grind up with my fingers, I then put into the lemon juice. I don't know. It had to be at least seven grams, um, which is crazy because that always seems so insane to me. But honestly, it wasn't enough. Like, I think the most I've probably done is like 11 or 12 grams. But the next time I'm like in nature and like, because I don't get that much time to go and just do a macro dose of mushrooms. It's not that often that I can just like be offline for a whole day. Um, but I think the next time I go and do it, I'll do something like 14 grams. Um, the problem is, is that it's just, it, it, it's not the best on your stomach. It doesn't feel great to eat that much. Um, but I know I can definitely handle it. I mean, it, I guess, you know, part of it, which is, it, it, it is kind of sad is that like first, maybe like 10 times and a handful of times afterwards, I did mushrooms. Like I would, I would do them and every like 10 minutes, I would have like a life-changing epiphany. And now it's much more just introspective. Like I, I feel like I'm just more reflective, but there's no profound, like I don't have those mystical experiences really anymore uh, where, where, where like my whole conception of reality is now changed. I barely even get like visuals anymore. Uh, it's like I've kind of mastered the mushroom. I, I would love to have some that just like kick my ass one of these days and send me back to uh, my my childhood, but uh, it's a much different experience than my medicine experiences as a kid. Sure. So uh, let's talk about the music that you listen to because you mentioned that's one of the caveats for having a phone nearby on airplane mode, but you'll have your music. What type of music do you generally like to listen to and who are some of your favorite artists to, you know, both within and without a mushroom experience. So, so know what I realized I needed to do because I had never properly done it? I had never listened to the John Hopkins psilocybin playlist. So that's what I listened to on this trip. And then, um, and, and it was great. I think it, it takes you through the motions. Like it's on Spotify. Highly recommend to anyone that's like doing a macro dose because they've kind of mastered the perfect playlist for a psychedelic experience. But I, I mean, so I'm a huge deadhead. I love fish. I like, like, so on mushrooms, it will be like classic rock, like the dead, Bob Marley, and then, you know, whatever, whatever, like, kind of arouses the senses. I, I, I have a lot of downloaded music on my phone, and so I'll, you know, I'll try not to curate too much. I'll usually put one playlist on, but then, you know, I've got, like, 
several different, like very varying playlists. And so, you know, you kind of have to feel it. But like, if you're, if you're just taking mushrooms to have a good time, you know, you play whatever you, you want the most and you just, you, you, you enjoy the most. And I think, you know, preparing for that is important. Having that music downloaded, you know, and, and available will make your experience much better. <laughs> uh, but but I, I, I'd say the John Hopkins Psilocybin playlist is really 10 out of 10. I got to give that one a listen. I've heard that from a few people now. So got to gotta check it out. Okay, so I've got two more questions for you today. So I was at the Meet Delic conference in Las Vegas last November. And one of the interesting questions I heard posed to a stage full of venture capitalists was if you had $250,000 that you wanted to invest in the psychedelic space, where would you put that money? And I'd like to ask you the same question. Obviously, you've got quite a bit more capital than that. But let's say for an investor who has a quarter million dollars or somewhere around that who wants to get into this emergent psychedelic space, where do you think that money is best put? If you had asked that question a year ago, I would have said, wait, uh, because I was so bearish on the public companies. There are now some fabulous deals in the public markets now. I mean, I, I can't really give investment advice, uh, but, you know, if you see a company that's going into, like, phase three trials and they have a sub $10 million market cap, that is a hell of a deal. I mean, the notion that 250 k could, in, in theory, get you something like, like, five percent of a publicly traded company it it in phase two or phase three trials i mean that it's just it, it's absurd i mean as a venture capitalist i'm not really supposed to invest in public companies on behalf of my investors because they can do that so it's all about privately held companies but frankly we're we're seriously considering uh investing in a few public companies right now because their value, their valuations are so low. It used to be that the worst deals in psychedelics were in the public markets. Now the best deals in psychedelics are in the public markets. So, you know, there are some companies that I would not bet on that are publicly traded, of course. But frankly, it, it's quite accessible right now to invest in this space legally as an un, unaccredited investor because uh, just... Biotech in general has taken a pounding, and, and the psychedelic one is just 10 times worse. And so it's a great time to, you know, dollar cost average, you know, week over week into a few of these companies because you can take outside, like outlandishly large positions for companies that are so far along in the development pipeline. Boom. You heard it here, folks. Do your due diligence and jump on a couple of those public companies if you can stomach it. So final question I have for you today, Jeremy, is what are you working on right now that you can share with us that we might be able to follow over the next year or so? Well, so I've got I've got a study I conceived of, well, blasted off on DMT that's now being undertaken at Imperial College London using some of the most advanced neuroimaging devices. It's not public yet, but the second the proposal comes out, it should come out in the next couple of months. It's being undertaken early this year. Um, I will be sharing that. So that's super exciting uh, because, in my view, this study could help us prove the internet connectedness of consciousness. Uh, it, you know, that notion that we are all one. Uh, so that's super exciting. 
you know, I just released um, the end of year report um, for my limited partners in Mystic. It's 20 pages long. I just uh, just put it out on Twitter, um, and we kind of examine macro trends, provide company insights. So that's exciting because you know it's really some. It gives a deep understanding of our insights into psychedelic, uh, it's psychedelics and the industry that's emerging. And then um, I'm executive producing two movies, one of which should be in its first festival in the coming weeks, just missed Sundance, uh, but it's about Petro, Gustavo Petro, the new president of Colombia. They've been following him for over two years when he was like this long shot president for uh, our, our candidate for the presidency of Colombia and somehow won after being a former like guerrilla fighter. Uh, crazy story. He's like a hard left, like Bernie Sanders, if Bernie Sanders like was part of the weather underground, like craziness. Anyway, uh, it, that movie should be coming out in the next couple of months. And then, well, the other one I can't really talk about, but I got a lot of shit on my plate, too much. <laughs> No doubt, no doubt. Jeremy Gardner of Mystic Ventures and Made Men, thank you very much for joining us on the Michaelpreneur Podcast, and I wish you a splendid rest of your day. And thanks for all the great work in the space. My pleasure, man. Thank you for having me. And that is a wrap. Thank you for sticking around to the bitter end. It's very sweet of you to commit so thoroughly. Don't be a stranger. Let me know what you thought of this episode, and please consider checking out the substantial backlog while you're at it. You can reach out to me via email, michaelpreneur at gmail.com or hit me on any of the numerous social platforms that I'm currently active on at michaelpreneur podcast is the handle on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you all very much for sticking around. Have a wonderful day. I'll see you back here next week on the michaelpreneur podcast.